Well, ladies, we've all held a little seed in our hands, and we look, we look at it and we marvel at it. We probably all remember all the way back to kindergarten or preschool having that little styrofoam cup with the potting soil, and we planted that seed in, and the, the roots went down, and the plant came up, and we just would watch every day, and it just seemed like a miracle. And even all these years later as grown-up girls, we would still declare a seed really is a miracle. We know that seeds come in all sorts of various sizes and shapes and colors, but, and when they're planted, they produce amazing things. Apple trees and pear trees and cherry trees and, and, and plants and pea plants and, 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 and seeds even grow up to become stalks of wheat. And, but they all grow, these plants and trees, from these tiny little seeds that seem like almost nothing. Usually seeds are very firm on the outside and they do appear to be dead. They're hard, hard almost like a rock. But inside every seed there is life hidden away, waiting to come out. The background graphic here pictured for you on the screen, I've got a, a whole set of wheat seeds in the, in the background, and then in the foreground there's an insert that sort of depicts what happens. It's sort of a cartoon drawing that lays out for us, this is a pea plant, but it really depicts what happens with any seed as it germinates and, and takes root when it is planted and grows to become a plant. The first graphic on the left pictures what we think of when we think of a little seed. It's hard, it's somewhat round or oval, but then change takes place. And you see that progression as you read the picture from left to right, the progress of what happens is that seed is transformed after it's planted. It, it sprouts and the roots go down and the plant pops up and leaves form. And that seed, it loses its original identity. And in that sense, it dies to itself. And in so doing, it eventually grows up to look like something completely different. It turns into a plant. And, and that plant produces many seeds that can grow many more seeds. That plant receives life from the S-U-N, from the sun. And then it produces all those seeds that grow on to produce more plants. In John chapter 12, the passage for our study this week, Jesus gave us an agricultural parable. And agricultural parables always worked in the first century because they were all farmers. They couldn't just go to the grocery store and buy their food. They had to plant it and grow it and harvest it. And he used the analogy of a kernel of wheat dying in order to produce many more seeds to teach us about eternal life in the sun, the S-O-N. His life was given that we could have life. And this week we're going to look not only at this little short parable, but very profound parable, but we're also going to examine some of the events and circumstances that led up to this teaching. We're going to begin by backing up to chapter 11 for our reading this morning to understand what came before this prophetic teaching by our Lord Jesus. The passage we will be reading begins, Therefore, and we as students of the word have always been taught that when you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? And it usually refers to what came before. And so in this case, the therefore is referring to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This extraordinary miracle drew many people to come and see, almost like it was a circus act. They wanted to see this man that had been dead and brought back to life. And they wanted to see this Jesus that had made that happen. So with that in mind for context, 
Please stand with me in honor of God's holy word as we read the background passage from John 11, verses 45 to 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, you, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. Would you just pray with me as we begin? Jesus, thank you for yet another parable. Thank you that because you were president of creation and you helped form and put us together, you know how we learn best with these simple analogies that, that, that give us this profound truth and help us remember. So, Father, today, as, you, as we study this parable where you used a seed to teach this truth, I pray that going forward, when we see a seed, it would stir up our hearts to remember that we are that new identity, that we have new life, that we have died to ourselves, and our identity is found exclusively and completely in you. Jesus, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for this good life that we have in you. And Father, I just pray today that as we unpack this passage, you would speak to each one of us and show us how we can live for you because you died for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, well, did you notice that there were two completely opposite responses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead in verses 45 and 46? I found it very interesting. Verse 45 says that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did. And, when they, and that's, of course, referring to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And their seeing that miracle prompted them to place their faith in Jesus. Well, seeing Lazarus, who was dead, brought back to life, how could you see that and not believe? How could you not see that this man has performed this incredible miracle, that he has power even over life and death? Many believed, but some did not. It, it, there don't seem to be any middle of the rotors here in this particular passage. They either believe or they don't. Verse 45 says, yes, many who had seen Jesus, what Jesus did placed their faith in him, but in verse 46, we see that some did not. It records that others decided instead to run and tattle to the Jewish leaders. Maybe they were hoping to ingratiate themselves with the Pharisees by running to give this report. How interesting, isn't it, that Jesus divided people then and Jesus still divides people today. We are either with him or we are against him. We are his friends or we are his enemy. In him we have life or we remain dead in our sins. Have you noticed in our world that even speaking the name of Jesus 
seems to make people a little bit uncomfortable. It seems like it's okay to say God, that, that God is acceptable, but if you're out at, at Walmart or the grocery store or the soccer field and you say the name Jesus, people just squirm a little bit. That They get a little nervous. They start to shuffle. They divert their eyes. It makes them feel uncomfortable. All these years later, Jesus is still dividing people. There were those who saw and believed, and there were those who refused to believe. When you stiff-arm the truth, your heart remains that hard, outer, lifeless shell. There's no room. There's no openness for God's life-giving grace and love to penetrate. The Pharisees, when they got this report, they proceeded to do what religious leaders do when there's a problem. They called a meeting. <laughs> and look at some of the minutes from that meeting. It's recorded for us in verses 47 and 48. What are we accomplishing? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And the group I sat in on this morning, one of the girls commented about how this particular passage just made her giggle. They just, scripture is so real. We think it's so boring when we are not reading it. But once we get into it, we realize these people are just like us. What are we accomplishing? What's going on here? It's just so real. And, we, and we, we see that there's nothing really new under the sun. Human nature is the same as it's always been. And as we look at this passage, don't the pronouns reveal so much? That the, the, what are we accomplishing if we let him go on like this? The Romans are going to take away both our place and our nation. Do you see all that? The entire discussion centered around themselves, how their power and how their place might be impacted by this man Jesus. What's most telling, I think, is what's not there. There's no prayer. There's no seeking God's wisdom or God's guidance, God's illumination. Now, ladies, these are the religious leaders of the day, but they are not praying about a very important decision. And as we look back 2,000 years later and we point a finger at them and we criticize them for their preoccupation with themselves and, and their selfish perspective and their addictive attitude that says, how does this impact me? It should simultaneously convict us because don't we often do the exact same thing? When there is difficulty or there is a conflict, do we stop, drop, and pray? Do we immediately seek God's wisdom and God's guidance? Do we call a meeting? And what we do, do we fail to pray at that meeting? Or do we, do we sort of treat prayer in our, even our religious or our church meetings as sort of those obligatory bookends? We begin with prayer, we end in prayer, but those prayers are, are sort of little rehearsed phrases sort of strung together like pearls. And, and, and they're not really intentionally seeking God's wisdom. They're, they're just sort of little phrases that everyone is sort of half listening to and, and everyone's thinking more about what they're going to say as soon as the praying person says amen. Are we truly praying? Do we really want God's guidance? Do we want God's guidance and his wisdom for our nation and for our government and for our community and our families and our workplaces and our finances and our parenting and, and our relationships and even our entertainment choices? Are we praying before we cast a ballot? Are we praying before we go shopping? Are we praying before we pick up the clicker? Are we praying before we have that conversation with our husband that says we need to talk? You know, do we, do we, do we spontaneously just insert that phrase in the middle of a conversation, let's pray, let's pray. 
we need to stop and pray right now. How would your life and, and my life be very different if we prayed first? If we checked in with God, truly wanted his input before we made decisions instead of sort of making the decision and then sort of praying and sort of just assuming God's going to rubber stamp the decision that in our heart of hearts we've already made. If we truly wanted his input, if we saw him as not just the God of up there, but very much the God of down here, he loves you. He wants to be involved in every decision, big or small, in your life. He is the great El Roy, the God who sees me as Hagar referred to him in Genesis 16, 13. He is the God who sees you. He is the God that cares about everything happening with you. He is the God that cares about the big stuff and the small stuff. Because you see, he's not a God of limited resources, but unlimited. I think sometimes we think, well, I'm not going to bother God with that. There are, there are women that need Tylenol for a feverish child in, in Africa. And, and there are, are women who are struggling with um, being sold into slavery in India. And, and those are big things. And I, I don't want to bother God with this little thing. But you know what that kind of an attitude does? It limits God. Because he is, he is a God of unlimited resources. He is infinite. We as, as earthly parents can only listen to one child at a time. Well, maybe moms can listen to two. We're, we're pretty good multitaskers. But we are so limited in our attention and our resources, and we can't simultaneously do meet everyone's needs, but God can. He can. So we need to come to him with all those little things. Well, the chairman of the committee of the Pharisees, Caiaphas, the high priest, and he wrapped up the meeting with words that were prophetic in ways that he could not even begin to imagine. He said this in verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He was, of course, referring to an earthly physical nation. They lived in the time of the Pax Romana. The Romans had brought peace to the first century, but they brought that forced, harsh peace by squelching any insurrection. And so they allowed you to do your own little thing in your little communities that had been conquered as long as there was no insurrection. So the Jews at that time feared most of all having any sort of trouble rise up and having the, the Romans come back in and squelch things and take, take away the power that they had been given to continue to function in their religious ways where they were. He was thinking only of physical death, and, and he didn't want to do anything or allow anyone to rise up that could invite the Romans to come back. But he wasn't realizing that the man that they were fixing to condemn, this Jesus, was the Son of God who would indeed die for the sins of not only the Jewish people, but for the whole world. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he would bring life to the world, eternal life for those who would place their faith in him. Do you believe that? Have you declared that? Are the profound words of John 3.16 that you maybe memorize as a child and you have in your brain and they could be on your tongue, are they embedded as truth in your heart that you have leaned into? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I taught that to my five-year-old granddaughter when I was in Houston a couple of weeks ago, and I recorded it for her. And if I were smart enough to figure out how to show you a video here, I would do it. But when Julia Grace re recites it, she says that they would not perish but have everlasting life. And I thought... <laughs> That, that's the kind of life we have. It's everlasting. We are living out loud and living large for Jesus. I love it. Ladies, the gospel is so simple, and it's free. 
but it costs Jesus so much. Every good meeting, of course, we know, wraps up with all the decisions made and the committee members knowing what the plan of action is. So in that regard, for the Pharisees, this was indeed a good meeting. From a human committee standpoint, there was an action plan. A decision had been made. And verse 53 records what that action plan was, where Jesus was concerned. Because it says that from that day forward, they plotted to take his life. That was the decision of the religious leaders' committee meeting. Arrived at with no consideration that Jesus was who he could, said he was, and no seeking God for wisdom, no prayer. With the time for the Passover is coming, Jesus would be that Passover lamb. John, we're studying this parable this week in the book of John, and all the way back in the first chapter of John, he had recorded these prophetic words. And so as Jesus becomes the Passover lamb, he is fulfilling that prophecy from John 129, where John himself had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is going to go to the cross, but it's going to be in his time. He will not be found by the Pharisees until he is ready to be found. Jesus is in control of all this. This wasn't anything that was done to Jesus. This was Jesus' choice to be obedient to death, death on the cross. So he stays hidden away until his time has come. Before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he takes a few days to hang out with his buddies. These three siblings, his three dear friends in Bethany, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and that's dropped in there in this passage for us. These three siblings were very dear to Jesus. When he was in Bethany, he would hang out with them. All three of them had their lives transformed by Jesus. And as I looked at this week's teaching and I looked at the passages that we considered, I believe that there's something that we can learn from each of the three of them about the transformation that takes place in our lives as we move from hard-hearted seed to new life and growth in Jesus Christ. Each of these three siblings was a human seed that was transformed by their relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time looking at Lazarus and Martha and Mary and see what we can learn from their lives. You know, ladies, we type the letters WWW multiple times every single day. But maybe going forward, when you type WWW, instead of thinking about how your life has been transformed by the World Wide Web, you will be reminded of your transformed life in Jesus. And you will choose to witness and work and worship him every single day. Because you see, when I look at the lives of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, I think they model transformation, each of them in their own way. Let's first look at Lazarus. His life was somewhat of a parable just in itself, a picture of what happens spiritually when a sinner by faith believes in Jesus Christ. A sinner is dead spiritually and then becomes alive. The hard shell of a hard heart becomes open and allows the gospel to penetrate, and new life springs forth. That which was dead becomes alive. The physical life of Lazarus became a witness that drew others to Jesus Christ. His life is what drew many people to believing in Jesus Christ. That's the passage that we read as we opened this morning. You know, it's interesting to note that as we look at the pages of Scripture, not one word that was spoken by Lazarus is recorded for us anywhere. Oh, we have lots of words for his sisters, Mary and Martha. They have lots of words that are recorded, but there are none from Lazarus. And yet his life 
was a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. He was dead, and he was brought back to life. The presence of a follower of Jesus Christ can change the landscape, the environment, the temperature of a home, a marriage, a relationship, even a community. When you look at the life of Lazarus and how it changed the landscape of his world, it's a good analogy of what a kernel of wheat does, how it changes the landscape physically from the picture I show here of just a plowed field that's empty and barren to a life and a landscape that is filled with mature plants that are growing, that produce seeds that can be planted and, and produce more seeds. From death to life, from nothing to something, from sinner to saint. Our death is transformed by our identity in Jesus Christ. I wonder, how is God calling you and me to die to ourselves so that we can be a witness for him in our world? The life of Lazarus spurs us on to die to ourselves and be transformed to be a witness for Jesus Christ. John 12 confirms what we know about Martha. It says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Well, that sounds about right. <laughs> Martha was serving. She was busy in the kitchen. It parallels the story with the details that we're probably most familiar with over in Luke 10 where it says, tells us that Martha was so distracted by all the preparations and she got a little huffy with her sister and wanted Jesus to say, tell Mary to get up here and help me. And of course, my take on Martha is, is it wasn't so much that the work that was the problem. It was, I think it was really the attitude that she copped while she was doing it. Because I think God created us as women to be multitaskers. And what I think is that Martha could have been getting lunch ready and she could have been listening to Jesus at the same time. She didn't need to cop that attitude. You've heard me say before that work existed before the fall. Work is good for us. It brings good satisfaction. Work existed in Genesis 2. It wasn't until Genesis 3 that work came with all the thistles and the thorns and it became difficult. And for the transformed believer... We know that God has work for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you believe that God has an assignment for you? Have you asked him what it is? Are you eager to step up and serve, knowing that you cannot fail when you and God are doing it together. The life of Martha was one of dedicated service. I wonder, how is God calling you and me to die to ourselves so that we can be faithful workers for him in our world? He has given us natural gifts and ability and spiritual gifts. He has equipped us to do everything he calls us to do. And no matter what those natural abilities or what those spiritual gift are, gifts are, God has given them to us and equipped us to to have them so that we can serve him. The life of Martha spurs us on to die to ourselves and be transformed into a worker for Jesus and his kingdom. John 12 goes on to capture a scene with Mary, the third of the three siblings, and it says this, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary came before Jesus 
with a very specific purpose, to worship and to anoint Jesus. We learn more details from Mark's gospel about the value of the perfume that she brought because the adverb very was added there. So in Mark's gospel, it tells us that it was very expensive. And we know that it was expensive because in verse 5, it tells us that Judas criticized her for the waste, suggesting this should have been sold and the, the money given to help the poor. And don't you just love the way our Lord Jesus spoke up and defended this woman amongst all the men? He said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. I just love that. It was a huge sacrifice. And it wasn't just a sacrifice financially because Mary took a risk. It was an offering of love and devoted worship to come in there and to do what she did. Mark also adds the detail for us that she broke the jar. And, I, and that has always struck me as profound. She held nothing back. You know, Mary didn't come in with her jar and a little teaspoon and pull out just a, a little bit to save the rest. She didn't just dip out a little dab, as my grandma used to say. She, and she didn't just tilt it and pour out just a, a drop or two. Mary was all in. I wonder, are you and I all in with our, our worship of our Lord Jesus? Are we able to disregard what everybody else thinks and just worship him in our way? Now, you know, of course, the opposite could be a problem, but if we choose to just be demonstrative because everybody else is watching and we want to impress them with our worship. But our worship is for Jesus. And when we focus on him, we're not concerned about what everybody else is thinking or doing. Do you and I hold back? Do, do, do we wait to worship God with our time and talents and our resources until we have enough for everything else that we're doing in our life? Do we only worship God out of our surplus or our, or our excess? Do we make sure we have everything else covered before we make time or, or make room for worship? Do we hoard the best, the first fruits, and, and just give God the dregs of what's left of our, of our time and our talent and our treasure? Mary broke the jar. She was all in. She gave all to him. You know, Jesus gave his all for us. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's what we all are. God has lavished his love on us so that we should be spurred on to lavish love right back to him. Mary lavished her love on Jesus. Don't you just love the word lavish? It's, it's just kind of a fun word to say, lavish. I love saying it. The dictionary tells us the definition is to expend or give in great amounts and without limits. And God has indeed given in his great love in great amounts and without limits. If your mama was like mine, she told you that perfume should whisper and not shout. And so maybe lavish, when it comes to spraying on perfume, should be discouraged. But when worship is concerned, and when Mary brought that perfume as an offering to Jesus, and, and we're looking at it as an act of worship, we should lavish our love. We can expend without limit because God has not had any limits as he has expended his, his life to love on us. Mary was shouting with her perfume that day. She dumped it all out on her Lord, and she was worshiping in response to his great love for her. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. We are children of God. Are we worshiping like the loved, cherished 
forgiven children that we are? Are we loving God like children of God? Are we worshiping God like children of God? The life of Mary changed the atmosphere around her. She worshiped God with reckless abandon. She was all in, completely, totally, nothing held back. How is God calling you and me to die to ourselves so we can worship him wholeheartedly, all in, nothing held back? The life of Mary spurs us on to die to ourselves and be transformed to an all-in, nothing-held-back worshiper of Jesus Christ. Ladies, here's our truth. The woman of God witnesses, works, and worships, and she does it all for Jesus. She dies to herself so that she can be all-in as a witness, as a worker, and as a worshiper for Jesus Christ. And the reason that she can be all-in for Jesus is that she has died to herself. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I hope you see the profound truth in, in the opening verse of Paul's letter to the Romans as it's recorded in, in uh, chapter 12 here, the first verse of Romans chapter 12. God died for us, so here we are called to be a living sacrifice. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> Being a living sacrifice means dying to ourselves. It, it, it means that we are choosing to live for him. And when we do that, every single time you and I die to ourselves, we die to what we want and what we want to do and what we want to say. Every time we, we die to ourselves, we are worshiping. It is an act of worship when we die to ourselves, when we deny ourselves and choose to do things for him and in his way. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, it launches a lifelong transformation from hard shell being broken, choosing to die to ourselves, trusting him as Savior, and then becoming slowly but intentionally and progressively transformed into the image of the one who made us, the one who knows us best, and loves us most. When we refuse to obey him, when we refuse to die to ourselves, we sort of stunt our growth. Yes, our identity is him, our salvation, nothing can ever change that. But whatever stage we are in that progression, we can, we can sort of get stuck there and not mature all the way to fruit bearing. When we become that mature follower of Jesus Christ, there's fruit that comes in our lives. Fruit that comes as a result of our, of our witness, and our work, and our worship for Jesus Christ. That's, that's the goal, to be transformed and sanctified. Each and every day, it's a new choice. Each and every day, we choose to die to ourselves because that old flesh nature, it rises up every single day. We want to do what we want to do. We want to say what we want to say. We want to watch what we want to watch. We want to buy what we want to buy. But every single day, we decide who's the boss. We say, Lord Jesus, you are the boss of me. I'm going to die to myself. I want to be transformed to live my life for you. I want to witness, I want to work, and I want to worship you. Jesus used the analogy of a simple seed to teach a profound truth. Death brings life, the life that is truly life, not the counterfeit, manufactured life that the world offers and, and, and doesn't last and doesn't deliver, but real life eternal life, lasting life from the Son, 
the S-O-N. And it's a continual transformation where as we cooperate with him, he uses us as workers and as witnesses and as worshipers to plant seed and bring more fruit for the kingdom of King Jesus. So there will be new worshipers and new workers and new witnesses for the kingdom. Are you and I choosing to die so that our single kernel can bring about a harvest larger than we ever thought possible? You know, I've heard people say that when you cut open an apple and you can count the seeds in the apple, but what we can never do is count how many apples are in that seed. And that's what's exhilarating to think about, that as we are obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and that growth goes out and those witnesses those go out and the work that we will never maybe see all the fruit from our labor, it's exhilarating to consider how God might use our simple act of obedience to bring about a harvest that we could never begin to ask or imagine. Ladies, how is he calling you to die to yourself? Who is he calling you to love on that's hard to love? Who is he calling you to forgive? In fact, in preparations for next week's lesson, the parable of the unfaithful servant, the topic will be forgiveness. And I want to wrap up today by challenging you to spend this week praying about who God might be asking you to forgive. Because I think that's one of the hardest ways to die to ourselves. We sort of nurse this hurt or this resentment or this wound. And we bring it out once in a while and we relive it to remind ourselves why we deserve to be mad, why we have a right to be mad. But if we are to be mature, grown-up girls, mature women of God who are following Jesus Christ, keeping our eyes on him means we need to lay that down. Die to ourselves in all ways. So... How is he calling you to die to yourself? How can we this week lean in to worshiping Jesus, to working for Jesus, to being a witness for Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, it is you that we follow. Jesus, you are our Savior and our Lord. But I thank you, Father, that we can look at the example of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and we can see tangible examples of lives that were transformed because they knew you. And Father, we want to be women who are transformed. We want to look different and behave differently now than we did when the hard outer shell of our life was first broken open and we accepted you as our Savior. We want to be on that journey to transformation, to maturity in Jesus Christ. We want to be used to live for you, to, to die to ourselves, to worship you every day, to work for you every day, to be a witness in every day, even without our words, but with our actions. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Would you empower us and give us opportunities this week to live for you? Would you stir up our hearts and minds to recognize those opportunities when they come, to see that they are Holy Spirit-inspired, doors that you have opened, and then, Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage and the conviction and the will and the determination by your power and your spirit to walk through those doors that you open. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. We want to live for you because we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great week. Oh, yes. Oh, and small group leaders, if you'll bring those envelopes and give them to Nellie before you leave as well.